Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organize lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. This episode features a lecture from our March 2018 event on the science of spiritual experiences from Jules Evans. Jules is the policy director at the Centre for the History of Emotions at Queen Mary University of London and a leading researcher into ecstatic experience. He runs the world's biggest philosophy club, the London Philosophy Club, which has over 6,000 members. His first book, Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, explored how Greek philosophy, particularly Stoicism, inspired cognitive behavioural therapy. It was published in 19 countries and selected by Matthew Syed as a Times Book of the Year. His second book, The Art of Losing Control, explores the science of ecstasy and all the different ways people find ecstatic experiences in a post-religious culture. You can keep up to date with Joe's work on his website, philosophyforlife.org. Enjoy the show. Hi, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Is this mic working? Yeah, okay. I think it's so cool that you've come here uh, to you know, spend your Sunday learning and growing. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I haven't done a talk for a few months, so I'm kind of buzzed. To be here and I feel like I've learned a lot since I last talked about this subject and understand it better myself. Take a second to turn to the person next to you and say hello, shake their hand, give them a high five. We're Londoners. Don't always do that with each other. Okay, okay, you don't have to get too deep yet. You're going to be talking a lot to each other. This is going to be interactive. Um, yeah, so you all have something in common. You all are willing to spend your whole Sunday learning about psychology, you weirdos. <laughs> so, this is a day on the self, on the psychology of the self. What an interesting question. Who are we? Why are we here? What are we here for? Big question. So, take a couple of minutes to just write down. I would like you to try and describe yourself in a couple of sentences. You got pens and paper, or if not, just you know, write it on your phone. Have a think about that. Who are you? Now, have you figured yourself out? Um, let's. I'm interested in some. Anyone want to volunteer? Should I just point at someone? What did you write, madam? Um, a wife, mother, psychotherapist. Uh huh. What's your name? Marie. Marie. Great. How about you in the third row in the hoodie? <laughs> uh, I said I'm 24-year-old, friendly, inquisitive. 24-year-old, friendly, inquisitive. Interesting. What's your name? Uh, Jake. Jake. Excellent. How about you, madam? Curious, adventurous, imaginative, open. Learn to be wary. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Sounds like a dating profile. <laughs> Good sense of humor. <laughs> and what's your name, madam? What's your name? Kimball. Kimball. Excellent. So it's interesting how we define ourselves, right? By the, our qualities, or our family life, or our job, you know, these things. But all these things change as well, so they change through life. 
And what about the ego? Like, what is that? This is the day we're going to be looking at the kind of the ego, but what is the ego? There isn't actually necessarily a settled consensus about what the ego is. So I was thinking about what is the ego. I came up with some ideas. First of all, self-awareness, right? It's the sense of I, the sense that I am here, this is me. And, but then who is this me? And then there's kind of habitual beliefs, feelings and behaviours. I am open-minded. I am friendly. So I am these kinds of personality traits or these kinds of beliefs. Maybe I am British. I am Marxist. Uh, feelings as well. I am depressed. I'm, I'm introverted. I'm extroverted. I'm excited. Um, and behaviors as well. I'm, uh, I'm an alcoholic or I'm, um, I'm, I'm a keen runner. All these things which are kind of bundles of habits but all of which can potentially change, though they might not. And also this body and physical sensations. I am hungry. I am excited. Though they also change all through our life as well. And we're a network of relationships with other beings uh, with our family, with our culture, perhaps with other species, perhaps with uh, spiritual beings, if we, if, we, if we have those kinds of beliefs. And we're a story about who we are, about our past, about our future, about the nature of reality. But that story is also always changing. So it's really the ego is a kind of story or a strategy that we build up over time, starting from when we're born. And it's built up in response to certain challenges. Because we're self-reflexive, because we have this awareness of I am here, this person in this particular body at this particular time, we also have the awareness that I'm separate. I'm separate from you. I'm separate from these other people. I'm vulnerable. I can be hurt. I can, I can injure myself. Suffering. I, 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 I can be in pain. I'm imperfect. I'm this person, this body, but you know, maybe I'm not, I'm not the ideal. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe other people judge me for some reason. I'm mortal. I know that I'm going to die at some point. And I'm social as well. I compare myself to other people around me. You know, maybe this person's uh, taller than me. Maybe this person is smarter than me. How do I compare? How do I fit in? So the self, the ego is constantly trying to work out, you know, this kind of strategy in response to these challenges. And the ego very much craves security. It wants to control, it wants a sense of security, stability and happiness. But in a world of transience where everything is changing all the time, we want to, sense, we want to build a kind of sandcastle to feel like I'm doing okay, I'm all right, I amount to something. And yet everything that we build that sense on is often kind of shifting and changing. And that's the challenge of being a human being. You feel, am I okay? But things are changing all the time. Who am I today? And you can end up in this kind of moments where it feels like your ego is falling apart. You get this kind of 3 a.m. neurosis. I had this a couple of weeks ago. I woke up and I got thinking. For some reason, I was in a rather agitated state. I think I'd had too much Chinese food that night, so I had a very high sodium content. I started kind of worrying, thinking, you know, who am I? What does my life amount to at this particular moment. I turned 40 this year. I thought, God, I don't have a pension. You know, what, what's that about? And should I, be, should I be married by now? I should be married by now. And like, I thought my family life, there were problems in my family as well. And you know, my, my thoughts started whirring round and round, faster and faster. My heart was pounding as well. I was, I was thinking, I, I'm going crazy, you know. And people can get stuck in those loops. And the thing about the ego, 
is when you start getting emotional as well, it's like energy into a storm. You start feeling afraid, it can whir around faster and faster and faster. And you can get stuck in those loops, in that whirlpool, for like an hour, or a day, or a few weeks, or, or a few months, or a few years, or a lifetime. Or lifetimes, maybe. In my case, I fell asleep after about 20 minutes. And I woke up the next day, no problem, fine. But how do we get out of those loops when we get stuck in our whirlpool of rumination of thoughts and we can really go crazy? Can we let go? Can we learn to step out of those loops, that whirlpool? Can we let go when we're really holding on too tight? Because the thing about the ego is we crave security and permanence. But if it holds on too tight, it actually causes us suffering. So can we learn to let go? And really that's the question. Is there something beyond the ego that we can let go into? If we do let go, is there anything else there? Or are we just the sandcastle? Because if we're just the sandcastle, then we're fucked, kind of. <laughs> so who am I? At this particular moment, I would describe myself as Jules Evans. I'm a writer, a practical philosopher, and I'm interested in ideas and practices, both from the past and from other cultures, which can help us to uh, suffer less and to flourish more. Um, I wrote uh, my first book, uh, Philosophy for Life, which is about strategies and ideas from ancient Greek philosophy and how people use them today. So particularly kind of Socrates and the Stoics. And I can summarize this book for you and save you some money in about two minutes. It's basically that Greek philosophy thinks we are these bundles of beliefs and habits and our emotions are very much tied up to our beliefs. And we can use our reason to reflect on our habitual beliefs and say, is that true? Maybe not. So it helped me a lot. I had social anxiety in my early 20s. Overly worried about what other people thought of me. Would whirl around fast and fast and get very, very anxious. And you can use Greek philosophy, which inspired cognitive therapy, to go, do I have, does everyone have to accept me? Maybe they don't. Maybe I can accept myself even if other people don't. So you use what is called in cognitive therapy the Socratic method to use your reason to reflect on your beliefs and choose differently. So you can remake the self, remake the ego using your reason bit by bit. Uh, and that works for a lot of people, and it worked for me to some extent too. But it doesn't work for everyone. Some people find it too rational, just using your reason to, you know, and some people it doesn't work. So the second book I wrote, uh, which was in 2017, was The Art of Losing Control. And that looks at how you can change yourself and heal yourself using um, altered states of consciousness and using the body. So if the first book was about Socrates, this is more about Dionysus, the god of ecstasy. We can heal ourselves using you know, these different kind of techniques and practices to kind of suddenly step out of the self, suddenly step out of the ego and become someone else and find healing. So it's a lot about ecstasy. And some people, you know, I say I'm writing a book on ecstasy and they say, doesn't it make your handwriting squiggly? What is ecstasy? We've kind of lost um, the original meaning of the term. We think it means either MDMA, or we think it means um, being very, very happy. Yeah? Like if you put in ecstatic into Google News now, most of the results will be from the sports pages. Uh, you know, fans ecstatic at uh, New Zealand's victory in the cricket, cricket, for example. 
So we need to get back to the original meaning of the word ecstasy, which comes from the ancient Greek ekstasis, ek, outside, and stasis, standing. So it means a moment where you're standing outside of your ordinary self or ego. So we've heard about you know, our definitions of our ordinary selves, moments where you go outside of that. Um, you go beyond your ordinary sense of self and you feel connected to something greater than you. Now, in most cultures, or in classical cultures, that would mean connection to some kind of spirit or God. So it was connected to this word in Greek, enthusiasmos, enthusiasm, which is entheos. You step out of your ordinary self and some kind of God or spirit comes into you. But in modern culture, ecstasy, you could also have an ecstatic experience where you feel deeply connected to other people or to uh, your nation or to nature or to something else. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a connection to some kind of God or spirit. Now, it can involve euphoria and wonderful feelings of bliss and serenity, but it could also be terrifying as well, the dissolution of your ordinary sense of self, because it's involving letting go of control. So it can be scary too. Now, uh, there is a kind of psychology, a science of ecstatic experience, which we're going to look at, but people use different kinds of words. So William James, who we'll talk about, talks about religious experience. Uh, Abraham Maslow, another psychologist, talked about peak experience. Um, others talk about self-transcending experience or altered states of consciousness. Or from a more negative side of this kind of realm of experience, you might talk about hysteria or even the scary word uh, psychosis. But it's a similar kind of realm, a family, a constellation of experiences which involves going beyond your ordinary sense of self, surrendering control. Now, most cultures at most times in history have had ecstatic rituals, places where people can go uh, to practice certain things, to get out of their head, to go beyond their ordinary ego for healing, connection, meaning, and fun. Healing, you step out of your ordinary sense of self and somehow it makes you feel better. You get over something that you're carrying, some kind of mental problem, emotional problem, and so on. Connection, you step out of your separate ego and connect to other people, to your tribe, to, to nature. Meaning, you feel like you get a sense of guidance. The gods tell you what to do with your life. You get a sense of your place in the universe. You, maybe a sense of what happens to your soul after death. And fun as well, let's not forget it. It is fun to get out of your head. It is fun to let go of your executive ego for a bit. We're not the only animal that does it. This is a moose that's uh, eaten some uh, fermented apples and, uh, and it's got out of its head. So other animals also uh, seek to get out of their heads. But humans particularly, because we have such a developed ego, we particularly love to get out of our heads. How long have we been doing that? Probably since Homo sapiens began. So Aldous Huxley suggested that ever since humans developed sapiens, self-consciousness, they also developed means to go beyond their kind of sense of self or ego. You look at some of the earliest human art, like the cave paintings at Lascaux. These are probably uh, rituals where humans went and gathered in order to go into altered states of consciousness to find meaning, connection, and healing. Huxley said, humans have a deep-seated urge to self-transcendence. So there are many different ways, many different techniques or practices people can use to find ecstasy. Any people can give me some examples of some, some of these kind of practices or techniques? Yep. Dance. Dance, yeah, absolutely. Other ones? 
Yoga, yeah. Psychedelics, yeah. Meditation. Meditation. Any more? Creativity. Creativity. Others? Music. Music. Others? Ritual. Ritual. Any more? Lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming. Others? Out-of-body experience? Yeah. There are, there are so many. There's also things like fighting and war and being in a crowd and being at a rally and having sex. Um, there's so many. And I got it into like 250 pages, but I missed out loads. I missed out laughter. I didn't talk much about theatre. I didn't talk much about cooking. So there are many different ways that people can find these moments of kind of epiphany, these spiritual experiences. But I mean, as, as we've said, a lot of them seem to involve music, dance, and performance. You know, in different cultures, a lot of them involve um, music and dance. Key kind of thing for helping us to go into these kind of uh, ecstatic states. So, for example, uh, the shamans in the upper Amazon, you go and you drink ayahuasca and then they sing these songs to you, to these ikaros they are called, to call in the spirits in order to kind of heal you. Uh, so this video only gives you a kind of little taste of what that's uh, like. Ooh, so we've called in the spirits now into Birkbeck, so that's good. Um, so yeah, that's a Shipibo shaman uh, in, in, in the Amazon. And music is central to their idea of healing. Isn't that interesting? Used to be the case in our culture too, but now can you imagine if you went to your GP or your, your local hospital, they started like, get out the banjo. <laughs> think. But, but yeah, that's interesting. We're coming back to that idea now. We're actually coming back to it in things like psychedelic science, the idea that music is essential to healing. Here's another example. This is a Sufi zikir where you kind of go around and around and chant, uh, and chant um, either the Quran or the name of Allah. Check out this. <laughs> So if you do that long enough, you'll get into an ecstatic state. Uh, our, the, in the Hasidic uh, Jewish culture, likewise, very much the use of ecstasy, ecstasy in music uh, as a means to connect to God in joy. So uh, here's an example.
I could watch that all day. Does <laughs> so anyone notice anything about those last two examples? No, women, men. All men, yeah. So that's interesting. So it's not, we're not just talking about psychology, we're also talking about culture and we're talking about politics. That's cool. <laughs> God, how to shame a guy for arriving late. Are <laughs> you just telling him to come and join you, I see. Um, yeah, so we're talking about kind of culture and politics and ethics as well. Who gets to lose control? Who gets to be in the room? Um, you know, uh, is it, uh, is it uh, in some cultures, uh, some ethnic ecstatic groups will be only for women, for example, and some will be only for men. Is it seen as shameful for some people? In psychedelics, for example, who's allowed to take psychedelics? Is it just for white people? What about people of colour? So there's all kinds of ethics and politics around ecstatic experiences, around who gets to lose control, who says it's okay to lose control, who controls the meaning of these rituals, all these kind of political things, particularly around gender and ethnicity. So likewise in Europe, uh, we've had uh, ecstatic rituals in the past. If you look in uh, ancient Greece, uh, Athens, you know, in, in the fifth century BC, highly rational culture, the birthplace of, of, of rationalism, but they also had ecstatic rituals, lots of them, things like uh, the cult of Dionysus or the cult of uh, the Eleusinian mysteries. So Aristotle, the great uh, rationalist philosopher, even though he was you know, the arch-rationalist, understood that a healthy society needed places people could go to unself, to find ecstasy, because it was healing. Um, and likewise, in, in Christian culture, there was a recognized place for ecstasy. Uh, it was an understood part of human experience. It was very regulated, of course, very much controlled by the church. If you said, everybody, everybody, God's just spoken to me, it could go pretty much one of two ways. You could be burned at the stake or you could be declared a kind of saint and lots of people would follow you. So it was risky, but there was a recognized place. There was a recognized ritual, rituals for this kind of experience. But then what happened is we lost a place for ecstasy in our culture. And that was partly because of the shift from around the 17th century and the scientific revolution from an enchanted animist worldview to a disenchanted materialist worldview. So before the scientific revolution, before this shift to a more materialist worldview, you have this idea that the enchanted universe is full of spirits, that they're all around us, and that the self is porous. What I mean is like it's permeable, so the spirits can constantly come into you, for good or bad. On the, bad, on the good side, uh, you might get uh, ecstasy, you might get prophecy, these gifts of the Holy Spirit, you might get um, the ability in tremendous creativity, all these kinds of kind of superpowers which you can get from the spirit world. And from the bad side, you might get possessed by a malevolent spirit, so it can go both ways. But basically, we're permeable in this worldview, and the spirits are constantly coming into us, spirits of ancestors, spirits of nature, God, and so forth. But we left that behind, that worldview, and shifted to a disenchanted materialist worldview, in which the self, to quote the philosopher Charles Taylor, is buffered. There are these kind of thick walls separating us off. There are no spirits out there, but we're also separated by a kind of our rationality from other beings as well, uh, from nature. We're separate from our, from our instrumental region from the world of nature as well. Uh, and that can feel rather atomized and lonely. On the other hand, at least we don't get possessed. At least we're not in the, in the, you know, the thrall of priests or shamans. 
So in materialist worldview, ecstasy is, begins to be considered a mental illness, a disorder. So this is a photo of a patient at a French asylum in the late 19th century uh, under the psychiatrist Charcot. Uh, and um, Charcot claimed that there is this brain disorder called hysteria. It's a kind of physical illness with the brain. And one of the stages of, of hysteria is ecstasy. Uh, and he would take these kind of photos of his patients in these ecstatic pose and look, look, and you know, he'd compare it to the gallery of saints. Did you see? They're, 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 you know, and he would claim that all these saints and mystics of yesteryear and the demoniacs and the possessed people, they were all suffering from hysteria. They were all suffering from a brain disorder. So uh, St. Paul, Muhammad, Jesus, Socrates, anyone who claimed divine inspiration of any kind was really suffering from some kind of brain disorder. And this was part of a battle for power between secular psychiatry and the church over who has authority over the mind and the soul. Uh, who gets to treat the soul or the mind and how do we treat it? And psychiatry won that battle in Western culture. So it was called hysteria or it might be called later um, psychosis um, or epilepsy or schizophrenia. And because of the victory of secular psychiatry in our culture, we are, we have, there's a kind of taboo around ecstasy now. If you, have a, uh, if you have an ecstatic experience, if you feel suddenly connected to the divine, to uh, God, to spirits, or in some kind of altered state of consciousness, you probably keep it to yourself in case other people will think you're stupid or mad, in case you get put on medication for the rest of your life. Now, of course, there are countercurrents. There are movements over the last 300 years to find a place for ecstasy, to revalidate it. In the 18th century, for example, there was Methodism, very popular ecstatic Christian movement, which then developed into Pentecostalism. It's also hugely popular. Some, um, thousands of people convert to Pentecostalism every week. Uh, in the 19th century, in the late 18th and 19th century, there was Romanticism, an aesthetic movement, which also tried to find a positive place for ecstasy, for trance states, for dreams, for visions. And then the big countercurrent, the big uh, movement back to revalidate ecstasy was, of course, the 1960s, which is a sudden mass explosion of ecstasy back into Western culture through rock and roll, through psychedelics, through the Eastern invasion of contemplative practices like yoga, Hare Krishna, Tai Chi. Um, so there was sudden interest, a sudden desire for ecstasy, and that's had a huge impact on our culture. So they've actually, they measure now the, the frequency of ecstatic or mystical experiences. So Gallup's been asking people, have you ever had a religious or mystical experience? And you can see in 62, only 20% of Americans said they did. And now it's closer to 50%. That's interesting, right? We've become less religious, but uh, more prone to mystical or ecstatic experiences, apparently. And so, you know, we're all, uh, and I did a survey myself uh, in 2016. I asked my, the readers of my blog, have you ever gone beyond your ordinary self and felt a connection to something greater than you? I wonder what you think about that, whether you have. My readers were very ecstatic. 84% of them said they'd had at least one ecstatic experience. Although 75% said they thought there was a taboo around such experiences still. So, but, you know, the 60s left a rather troubled legacy in our culture. On the one hand, 
we, want, we don't want to miss out on this realm of experience. So we want to have you know, peak experiences or these heightened experiences. We want to feel we're really living, you know, that we, we're living fully. We want to go to places like this is morning glory. You know, we, we want to go to festivals. We want to get our highs, our thrills. On the other hand, we, we're a bit worried about, you know, will I lose control too much? Will I go crazy? Um, and we definitely, uh, we don't like priests and we don't want anyone controlling our ecstasy. We don't want to be brainwashed. We don't want to give away our authority to anyone else. So we have this rather ambivalent attitude to ecstatic experiences. And we're quite individualist and consumerist as well. We want ecstasy on our own terms. We want to be in control of it. We want to be able to choose where we do it and when. Uh, and we want to know, we want to make sense of it for ourselves. We don't want anyone else telling us what our ecstasy means. So there's a bit of a kind of consumerist attitude to losing control. There's a kind of ecstatic experience economy. We want to be in control of how we lose control. And we're right to be worried about it. We're right to be a bit ambivalent about ecstasy because it can be dangerous. Not all ecstasy is healthy. We know that. You know, you can end up in cults, you can end up brainwashed, you can end up just kind of totally credulous and believing anything. Not all mass euphoria is necessarily healthy. I mean, we learn this from, from, from Nazism. It's a very ecstatic political movement. And so we don't look to priests now to tell us what ecstasy... So it's an important question is basically, can we find healthy ecstasy as opposed to toxic so Aldous Huxley, again, talked about healthy transcendence and toxic transcendence. We all search for transcendence. We all try to get out of our head, out of our ego, to kind of get some release from that endless chatter in our heads. But we can do that in healthy or unhealthy ways. So Martin Sheen uh, was an alcoholic. He said alcoholism is a misguided search for transcendence. I think Russell Brand would say something very similar about his drug addiction. So can we get healthy ecstasy rather than unhealthy? And when we're asking ourselves that question, we no longer so much look to priests because we hate religious authority and we want to be in control of our own ecstasy. And instead, increasingly, people in Western cultures um, look to scientists to tell us how to lose control safely, what kinds of ecstasy are good for us or bad for us. So we look to the authority. Scientists have replaced priests uh, in that regard. And there's developed over the last century, really, a kind of science of ecstasy which sounds a bit paradoxical, a kind of rational, analytical science of ecstatic experience. But that has grown up over the last century. So how can you have a science of ecstasy? Well, there are different ways you can look at ecstatic experience, different levels, four different levels. You can look at the neuropsychological, what's going on in St. Francis's brain and his autonomic nervous system, what's going on uh, in, in, you know, in, the, in his bloodstream, what kind of chemicals are going through his system when he has a moment of ecstasy. Or you could ask Sir Francis, what's going on with you? You could ask, that's the phenomenological level, which basically, what does it feel like? So, so describe to us, St. Francis, what is this moment of ecstasy like? And then we could compare these kinds of accounts. Or we could look at it from a cultural point of view, what is it about um, St. Francis' moment of ecstasy? Why at that particular moment in history? Why did he have a vision of lady poverty at that particular time, just when there were concerns about corruption around the Vatican? Why, why the cross? Why this kind of dress? Why did he attract so many followers? So we can use things like anthropology, history, sociology, and the arts to look at the kind of culture. 
And then there's a fourth level, ontological. Are people really connecting with some kind of God or spirit world, or is it just their imagination? If they are, what is the nature of that spirit world? Is it a Trinitarian God? Is it an animist world? So there are those kind of questions. Now, science doesn't really answer those, the fourth level, but it, it can tell us a lot about these other three, as can the humanities. So William James, really the person who launched this science of ecstasy with his book, uh, The Varieties of Religious Experience, in I think it was 1902, very much kind of looking at the phenomenological way. So take, looking at people's accounts of ecstatic experiences and comparing them and putting them into categories. And he said, look, we can't know for sure if people are connecting to God or spirits, but we can say these kind of experiences happen a lot and often they're good for people. They lead to what they feel is a more flourishing life. And so, you know, using that phenomenological account, we can compare people's what's called spontaneous spiritual experiences. So that's one of the things I did in my book. Look at people's spontaneous moments. A spontaneous spiritual experience is you're, you're just going down the street, as Philip Pullman was one day. He was walking down the Charing Cross Road, not far from here, in 1969. And suddenly something shifted in his consciousness. And he had a sense that the universe was alive, conscious, and full of purpose. And he felt deeply connected to this animate, intelligent universe. And it lasted for a few hours, and then he came back to ordinary consciousness. And that, he says, uh, affected everything he wrote since then. So it informed, if anyone, has anyone here read the Dark Materials books? You know, the idea of the universe being intelligent and alive and full of consciousness. And people make sense of these kinds of spontaneous experiences differently. Not everyone necessarily thinks they are proof of God. So, for example, uh, sorry, uh, Bertrand Russell, again, was walking down a street, a rationalist philosopher, and he suddenly felt a deep sense of, you know, his heart spilled over with love and sympathy for these strangers around him on the street. He suddenly had a sense of the suffering of our fellow humans and a deep sense of sympathy and love. So weird, just happened. Suddenly he was like, what's going on with me? Why is my heart brimming over with love? And he couldn't rationally make sense of that moment. And he didn't try to, but he says it changed him for the rest of his life. It didn't make him a Christian. He was a committed atheist his whole life, but it turned him from an imperialist into a lifelong pacifist. So people make senses of these sudden, spontaneous moments of ecstasy differently. But the word they often use to describe these experiences when you compare their accounts is, um, is connection. People feel like they go beyond their ordinary sense of ego, which is separate, just me here, stuck in my thoughts, worrying about myself, to suddenly very connected. Suddenly very connected to other people, to other beings, to nature, perhaps to the universe. It's a sudden shift in a sense of not just little me, but us, we. So um, there are these spontaneous moments of ecstasy, but can we seek it, do you think? I mean, it's an interesting question. Can we or should we try to seek ecstasy? My, the subtitle of my book was A Philosopher's Search for Ecstatic Experience. Is that a rather foolish endeavor? Do they just happen, moments of gratuitous grace, as the Catholic Church calls it, or can we seek it? Well, um, actually, humans do. If you look at cultures around the world, we do seek ecstasy. 
Uh, we go to the caves, we go to concerts, we go to places to try and find these kinds of epiphanies. But I want you to think now, um, before we just have a quick break and I'll get you to do something with the person next to you, um, about, we, we can talk about ecstasy, it sounds like these very grand moments that maybe happen once in a lifetime, if you're lucky, yeah? But I want to suggest that there are more ordinary or everyday moments of ecstasy which can happen to us. Uh, which the psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi called flow. Okay, flow experiences are moments where you become deeply absorbed in a certain activity, so much so that you kind of lose track of time and you stop kind of, the ego chatter in your head dies away and you're just very focused. So it's something that emerges out of attention. Your attention becomes very channeled and focused on a particular activity. And it feels kind of great because for a while suddenly the volume is turned off on your ego chatter. And people can get those kind of experiences lots of different ways. Uh, for me, I get it from playing tennis. That's why I love playing tennis because I'm a very overthinking kind of person. When I go on the tennis court, I have to just focus on each point. And that's, that's a wonderful kind of release for me. And I come after an hour playing tennis on a good day, I feel just, you know, much more spacious and in my body and good. But other people can get it through reading. You get lost in a book. Isn't that part of the joy of a really good novel? You get absorbed in that world or through the theater or through cinema. There are lots of different ways we can get these kind of everyday little moments of ecstasy or uh, flow. Now, you might think that I'm comparing apples and pears, these deep mystical moments of ecstasy and these kind of flow experiences. Maybe they're two different things. But I want to suggest to you that there's what I call a continuum of absorption. So on the one hand, there are these kind of everyday experiences of ecstasy, these flow states where you get really into playing you know, tennis or you, get, you hear a concert, you hear a song and you just get carried away by it, transported. And then if you get more and more focused, more and more absorbed, then you can go into really these kind of states of total kind of ego loss, these radically different states. All these kind of flow activities, like reading a book or a poem or going to a play, playing tennis, all of them on a very, very, very good day can be what people call a kind of spiritual experience, a moment of real transport. Okay, I would like you now for five minutes to just have a chat with the person next to you about how do you get out of your chattering ego mind daily or weekly? What are the strategies you use to find these kind of everyday moments of ecstasy or flow? Uh, and how does it, you know, how does, wh how does it make you feel and why do you do this? So let's do that for about five minutes. All right, how did that go? Um, what are people's strategies? Anyone? Yeah? Yes. Walking, mm-hmm, in, in the park. Yeah. 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 Into the the ruminative kind of mind. Yeah. Never sit down. <laughs> let's get up. Let's, let's go down Mallet Street, up and down. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, you know. So that was you know. You know, I talked about romanticism and they, ha they revalidated kind of ecstasy and tried to find a place for it as well. And walking was so important for them, for the romantics. You know, from Rousseau, he talks about the kind of reveries of the solitary walk. Was that the name of his book?
book, I think, something like that. And Wordsworth, who, who just walked thousands and thousands of miles and used it as a means for poetic inspiration. Um, so absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, I found doing something different yeah. that I didn't do last time. Mm. Something completely beyond what I could think of. Okay, like for example? No idea. Okay, that's mysterious. <laughs> But it's interesting, right? So uh, part of the reason people sometimes seek epiphanies and ecstasy is to de-automaticize. Is that a word? Yes, yeah, so we're sometimes in, in our habitual automatic things and it's just like we're kind of sleepwalking uh, and, and sometimes moments of ecstasy, we, we step out of those um, automatic habits uh, and that can be very disorientating. Um, there was a New York Times article in the 70s which found something like 60% of people said they'd had an ecstatic experience but three quarters said they never wanted another one <laughs> because it upturns the apple cart of our habitual expectations. But that can be something amazing about that as well because you see with new eyes, uh, you know, like this orange, what an amazing orange. And the word orange, and, you know, so you see like with the eyes of a child again and that's wondrous. So do something new as a way, you know, just to step out of the, the automatic pilot. Any others? Yeah. I knit. Knitting, yeah. Absolutely. I love the, the talks of Ram Dass. Did anyone come across Ram Dass? Amazing. Kind of, he was a scientist, a, a psychedelic scientist. He worked with Timothy Leary at Harvard. He was fired from that and he went off to India, found a guru and renamed himself Ram Dass uh, and brought back a lot of these Eastern practices into the West. And he came back into the West in the 70s and he would give these talks about ecstatic states achieved through yoga uh, or through heavy doses of LSD. And he once gave a talk and there was this old lady in the front row nodding at everything he said. And he would look at her and she'd be there nodding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he was like, how does she understand all the stuff I'm talking about? And uh, he went up you know, at the end and said, so you seem to get all this. What do you do? Do you have a practice? And she said, crochet. <laughs> So that was, you know, the technique. I think there are books on kind of contemplative knitting. Yeah. Any others? Knit your truth. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, it's, and that's, it's probably an ancient one, really, isn't it? You know, tribes get together and just kind of knit and talk and get into the zone. Absolutely. Any others? Yeah. Interesting, yeah, because you've got to kind of, you've got from 10 until 10.15 for your moment of, of absorption, yeah. Right, uh, and, and it's also like, is it, maybe attention is a resource as well, that, you know, something that we can develop, we can have a greater reservoir of it or lesser. Um, do people agree with that? And who here thinks you can kind of develop your capacity for uh, attention? Yeah, has anyone found that? Yeah? And has, has it worked? Yeah. What do people use to develop their attention? Meditation, and does it, has it made it better, do you think? And can you transfer that out of the meditation to get really focused on a film, say, or whatever, or a conversation, or a person? Yeah? Okay, yeah, I've found that too, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So attention is a resource that we can develop through kind of practice, and then we can use that to, to, to suck deeper on all these kinds of uh, activities, whether it's reading a book or anything. But it's difficult as well if you've got... Uh, it's one thing if you're a monk, if you've got a family life and so on. Yeah. Any others? Yeah, at the back, yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. That takes me out every day. Yeah. A particular instrument? I play bass and guitar. And uh, on your own with other people? Both. Yeah. Actually, I was talking to my friend here. Yeah. If we are just improvising, you're communicating music, that's the mm. experience. Ah, oh, it is. It's sweet, isn't it? I, so I had social anxiety in my 20s, and then I went to Russia as a journalist. And I was still pretty anxious, though I was better. And I was in a band there uh, called The Nervous Rex. I came up with the name. <laughs> uh, my band before that was called Lunatic Fringe. So you can see a kind of... Uh, but, um, and yeah, I noticed a correlation between how well I drummed and how shitty my day was. Like if I'd had a really crap day, you know, I would drum with intensity as a means to catharsis. You know, and there was a lovely moment where I'd be suddenly back in my body and connected to the people in the room, having been really in a kind of cocoon of rumination. And that was just a wonderful feeling of breaking through. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of, for a lot of people, music is their kind of, their therapy as well. Like Bruce Springsteen's had kind of bipolar disorder. And that, you know, the desire to kind of get out of that is what gives him that energy to go and perform for like three hours and to, you know, to connect with uh, the band and connect with the audience because when he's off the stage, you know, you can be back in that, in that loop, in that cocoon. Um, okay, yeah, brilliant. So we're, I'm going to talk now about uh, deeper experiences uh, of, of ecstasy. Those, these all can be pretty deep, though, and you can knit deep. But uh, I'm going to talk about, you know, what about, can we seek these, these, these kind of really, you know, altered states of, 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 of ego dissolution? And I'm going to talk about... Um, three activities and some of the research around them and, and, and compare them as well. Uh, psychedelics, meditation, and moments of surrender, kind of like faith healing. Um, so, psychedelics. Uh, we should start by saying uh, they're illegal in this country, uh, <laughs> most of them, uh, and they can be dangerous. Uh, and I uh, messed myself up with psychedelics in my teens. First tried LSD when I was 15, probably too young. Uh, and, uh, you know, friends of mine and I had tough experiences on them as well. So this is not uh, a subject to be taken lightly. Nonetheless, humans have taken psychedelics uh, for uh, millennia. So this is um, a picture from the Aztec Codex of someone eating uh, mushrooms uh, and the Lord of the Underworld approaching. He's behind you. Looks like he's going to have an interesting trip. Uh, so Aztecs would take mushrooms partly for fun. So that, you know, if you have a kind of you know, a party, the aristocrats would all get together and eat mushrooms just to kind of fun and dancing. But they also used them for prophecy. So there was an Aztec prophecy that um, men with beards would come and conquer them, which they got from mushrooms. Turned out to be kind of accurate. Um, and uh, in European culture, Scholars aren't entirely sure, but they think that there may have been some of these secret mystery rites which happened in ancient Greece uh, and in other places may have involved psychoactive substances. Though we don't know because they were secret, 
but there was uh, the Eleusinian mystery rites, for example. All of Greece, uh, once a year, would go to this place. They would fast on this route to uh, this place, Eleusis, prepare themselves, hone their intention and their kind of moral sense, put on white clothes, go into this chamber, and then drink this potion called the Kikaeon, which is something made perhaps to do with corn and the goddess Demeter. So some people think it might have contained some kind of type of ergo, which is what uh, LSD came from. And then they would go on this terrifying journey to the underworld, uh, feel themselves confronting demons and monsters, darkness, wandering, shaking fear, until they emerged into the light and felt themselves blessed and reconnected to their fellow Greeks, brothers and sisters of Demeter. Uh, Cicero said of all the gifts of ancient Greek culture to the world, uh, the greatest was the Eleusinian mysteries because it helped people to die with a better hope. It made them feel that when they died, they would connect to some kind of blessedness. So people had that idea before Jesus, before Christianity. But we don't know for sure if they were definitely drinking psychedelics, so it's a contentious topic. But it probably there were some kind of rituals involving psychedelics in, in ancient European culture. But then we lost that. It's rather strange. Somehow or other, we lost um, our psychedelic rituals. We lost the idea. And it's interesting that all those centuries, uh, magic mushrooms were growing in, uh, in Britain, in our fields. Uh, but people weren't really aware of them. There were occasional cases of like a, a vicar who would make himself an omelette, say, and then be found giggling on the street. <laughs> Uh, you know, you'd be reports of this in the 19th century, but no one, you know, no, no one really thought, hey, that sounds fun, let's, let's find these much, what was he doing? They just, you know, they very minor cases. Basically, there was ignorance about it. People didn't really know about these things. And then it came back in the, um, it came back in the, well, in the kind of early, uh, I mean, there were things like opium, for example, in the 19th century, kind of psychoactive. And people discovered um, peyote and mescaline uh, in the kind of, early 20th century, late 19th century, uh, started to experiment with that and found that it had these interesting properties. So um, by the 50s, there was some research into uh, mescaline and people like Aldous Huxley were taking it. And then in the late 50s, um, people discovered that there were indeed these uh, magic mushrooms that could pe people could eat. So 60 years ago, someone called Gordon Wasson, a, an investment banker of all things, a JP Morgan banker, uh, went to Mexico and discovered these uh, rituals where, in, in the hills where indigenous people would take magic mushrooms for healing purposes. And he became the first white person, he says, uh, to, to take these. And after that, loads of people started to go to this particular village. Uh, it was kind of ruined, in fact. I mean, the Rolling Stones went there, John Lennon went there. Hordes and hordes of hippies descended on this particular village in Oaxaca. Uh, and this poor shaman woman was overwhelmed with requests. Um, but really that spread this, uh, and then we, um, there was this, was psilocybin, they found this drug that was in magic mushrooms. Uh, and that led to the psilocybin project at Harvard. And around the same time, of course, LSD was, uh, was discovered. I think it was in uh, 58 as well. Um, and for a while there was just like uh, scientists studying these, these, um, these subjects, these, these compounds and what they could do and finding really interesting results, finding that they help people with depression, with anxiety, with addiction. They seem to lead to radical changes in the personality. So for about 10 years, there was this kind of, you know, just fascinating research into psychedelics and all the kinds of different things they might do to lead to radical uh, behavior change and personality change. But then what happened is psychedelics suddenly went uh, mainstream. 
uh, and uh, you know, particularly around kind of 66, 67, 68. Uh, thanks to some people like Timothy Leary. So Leary was fired from Harvard for giving psychedelics to undergraduates at parties. Um, and he kind of set himself up as a guru. He said, we need to start our own religion. Uh, he, this is him at the, uh, in a festival in, in 67. Uh, and he said, you know, everyone should take uh, LSD. We should create a neo-ecstatic society by all taking LSD. He and Ram Dass, or Richard Alpert as he was, had a chart on their wall showing how long they thought it would take all of the world to become enlightened. They thought maybe like 10, 20 years, but it might involve putting LSD into the water supply. Um, so, you know, this, this freaked out the authorities. Uh, so in 68, uh, Richard Nixon declared Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America. And psychedelics were put onto the class one uh, list. They were banned for all purposes, even research purposes. And so there was suddenly a hiatus of research into these substances. You couldn't do anything with them. You couldn't take them. You couldn't research them. And that lasted um, really until about kind of 20 years ago when research started again at several different institutions um, at Johns Hopkins University, uh, at Imperial College in London, at Zurich and other places. And they started to research, particularly into kind of psilocybin, this drug and magic mushrooms, but also LSD, DMT, and to see how it changed the brain. They could put people into brain scanners, see what was the impact, whether it helped people therapeutically. And they found really interesting uh, results. So particularly in terms of uh, helping people change and grow and heal, uh, a study at Imperial found that, um, the, uh, I think it was either LSD or psilocybin, helped with people who had uh, treatment-resistant depression. Something like 60% of people in this small trial had still recovered from depression six months after taking uh, one dose of, uh, of magic mushrooms. Uh, another study found that um, after one dose of magic mushrooms, 80% of people gave up uh, smoking. Um, PTSD, there's a study looking at uh, MDMA and how it helps people to recover from uh, post-traumatic stress. And even anxiety and depression in the terminally ill. So after uh, two doses of magic mushrooms, people who were facing life-threatening cancer showed a marked drop in uh, their anxiety about dying. So a bit like the old mysteries of Eleusis, it seemed to help people to die with a better hope, to think maybe death isn't uh, the end. So these interesting research, and you know, scientists working in this field think it's maybe like five or ten years before um, psychedelic therapy is legal. Um, it's already, there's already a move to make it legal in California. Because of uh, spiritual tourism or drug tourism, you can go to different places in the world now. You can go to Portugal uh, or uh, to Amsterdam or Peru and try psychedelic therapy. And lots of people are going and trying these kind of therapies out uh, for themselves. And um, what's happening? Why, how are these drugs, after one dose, leading to such drastic changes in personality and behavior? Well, um, in the Johns Hopkins psychedelic team, they talk about how psychedelics lead to what they call the mystical experience. So it's rather interesting. You have these kind of dry psychopharmological journals or psychiatric journals. They're talking about mystical experience. And you know, the main contributing factor to healing is the mystical experience by which they mean a moment where your ordinary sense of self dissolves and you feel like deeply connected to uh, something greater than you, whether that's nature, the universe, 
the cosmic mind or something, but people talk about feeling, or to their deeper self and to their own emotions. So it's a radical moment of ego dissolution and of a kind of ecstatic sense of connection. And um, we can find the neural correlates of that kind of ecstatic feeling of connection. It seems that uh, on psychedelics, the brain, different bits of the brain uh, become more connected than usual. It leads to higher states of brain connectivity. And what happens on a phenomenological level is um, psychedelics seem to help people lower the threshold of their consciousness. We often have uh, deep automatic patterns of uh, belief or feelings or behavior which aren't always you know, in our everyday conscious mind and they're not always, we can't get at them with rational cognitive behavioral therapy. But in these radical mystical type experiences, some of these unconscious patterns seem to rise up into consciousness in the form of visions, deep feelings, intuitions. And because your kind of sense of consciousness gets expanded, you have access to under the bonnet of your personality, as it were, to patterns which are normally automatic and unconscious. And you can see them or feel them, and you can choose differently. You can choose, okay, I don't need to carry around that habit of guilt anymore or of self-loathing. And so it leads to this kind of ability to step into a different story. So, for example, um, Simon Amstel, the comedian, anyone know him? Anyone know his work? So he had uh, anxiety and depression. Therapy helped him a bit, but not totally. So he ended up going to the Amazon jungle to drink ayahuasca, which is this potion made from two psychedelic plants. Um, and he found it really changed him and helped him to overcome his long-term chronic depression. He says, uh, before I left, I felt broken. After I came back, I didn't feel broken anymore. I felt like I was part of the world, not disconnected from it. So it helped him step out from his old habitual story of himself into a new story where he felt reconnected to himself, to other people, to the universe. And, you know, ayahuasca is a bit like a strange lucid dream for four hours or so where visions arise which seem to be very personal to you. So, for example, he saw himself as a child and he saw his father hitting his mother when he was just a little boy. And he realized he always felt guilty and powerless for not being able to protect his mother. And in the ayahuasca vision, he could see he was just four years old. He couldn't protect his mother, but he'd be carrying around that subconscious guilt and he could choose to let that go. And some of the visions are a bit stranger. He saw a uh, this sad gorilla appeared to him and he said to the gorilla is it true is that is it is all we need to do in life seek joy and he says the gorilla looked a bit kind of bored and depressed and just went yes and so he wrote in his journal joy confirmed and <laughs> underlined and he now, and then he became a big contributor to a gorilla supporting charities so there you go so um fascinating field of research so interesting one of the most interesting fields of research there, there are at the moment. But there are interesting questions for that field as well. So do psychedelics connect us to some ultimate reality? Or do we just meet our own cultural projections? So for example, if you look at Westerners who take ayahuasca, we often think that uh, everyone goes to the same place on ayahuasca. That we all meet a spirit called like Mama Ayahuasca, who's this kind of benevolent life coach who uh, guides us to, uh, you know, through life and helps us to heal childhood traumas, moves us to a place of love and acceptance 
uh, and grace. And that that's pretty much what everyone has with ayahuasca, right? This is, can be the Western assumption. You know, Aya will help you. Aya will be there for you. Aya will guide you and love you. So you really just change the word Aya for Jesus, and you've got you know, a very kind of Christian model of what ayahuasca does. But that isn't necessarily how indigenous people would take or experience ayahuasca. They have a different model of illness and healing. In the indigenous model uh, of, uh, of, of illness, if you feel unhappy or ill or depressed, it's because probably someone's cursed you. And you take ayahuasca to find out who's cursed you, to remove the curse, and to get revenge. So it's a completely different model. So really, people, you know, you can think that if you take ayahuasca, you're all going to the same place, you're all having the same experience. But actually, different cultural, you know, settings and contexts lead to quite different experiences. So that's the question. Um, do we all go to this mystical experience, or do we just see back, reflected to us, our own cultural expectations? If you say to someone before giving them magic mushrooms, and now you're going uh, to meet the great polar bear, will they then meet the great polar bear? You, you know, is this just reflecting back our expectations? That's one question. Another question is, is the mystical experience true? And does it matter? So the study at Imperial, for example, um, people uh, were freed from their depression because they felt connected to some kind of, um, you know, greater power sometimes, or people felt less anxiety about dying in the Johns Hopkins study because they felt maybe death is not the end. They felt they'd had this intuitive experience of that. But is that true? Maybe that's just a delusion. One of these scientists at Imperial says psychedelics lead to kind of primitive regressive thinking. Does it matter if it's true or not, if it's helping people? So that's an interesting question. And is it safe? You know, what about bad trips? Can it harm people? A lot of people on psychedelics meet entities. Do all these, or spirits, uh, something like 50% of people who take ayahuasca or, uh, or, or DMT, meet, they go into a realm which is occupied. It's full of these beings. Who are these beings? Are they real? Do they all wish us well? You know, in Western psychedelic science, they say anything you see is a projection of your mind. You should recognize it as a projection of your mind. Maybe that's not true. In shamanic culture, some of the things you meet might not wish you well, and you might need protection from them. So these are some of the interesting questions. I interviewed one of the leading psychedelic scientists last week, and I said to him, so uh, do you believe in negative spirits? And there was just this long pause. He just didn't know how to answer, how to approach that question. But it is an interesting question. Okay, uh, a second uh, technique for these deep mystical experiences is um, contemplation. One of the oldest and, 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 and most established in Western culture. So you look back at, uh, at Christianity in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century, and you had um, monasteries and nunneries, which were kinds of um, laboratories for inner exploration. Uh, they were experts at deep diving into the psyche. And they would create for, for lay people these books, which were kind of guides through the deep levels of the self, kind of maps uh, of the mind. They would often use these visual metaphors. So this is uh, St. Teresa of uh, Avila, uh, a 17th century mystic, uh, and she, um, or late 16th, and she wrote this book, um, The Interior Castle, which it, it, it imagines the self as a castle with seven different levels, and it guides the reader on this journey through these uh, things. So they would model the mind with these metaphors. Uh, and ecstasy was actually not the aim of these contemplative practices, but it was just something that happened along the way. So when you practice contemplation long enough, 
Occasionally you would have moments of rapture uh, and joy, but you shouldn't get attached to it according to uh, Christian contemplation. It's just something that happened along the way. It wasn't the goal. The goal was union with God and service uh, to God. And then, uh, unfortunately, we lost our indigenous contemplative uh, tradition. So we, um, you know, in the dissolution of the monasteries, 800 monasteries and nunneries were closed uh, in one year. And we lost all those maps for the mind, all those guides into the deeper levels of the self all those um, metaphors, all, all that expertise, we lost that. What a, what a wound to our culture. And instead, we turned our gaze outwards to the external world. He said, who cares about, that's all just navel gazing. You look into the self and you get lost in dreams. That's not, what use is that to anyone? Let's learn about the world. Let's learn about the world of matter. Let's learn how to measure uh, and control and transform the external world. So we turned our gaze totally outwards and we lost um, you know, any kind of interest uh, in the inner world, any ability to, to map it. And that was unsustainable. That was never going to last. It was an unbalanced form of culture that Western culture existed in for centuries, where it was so focused on the outward world. Uh, it, we, we, we needed contemplative practices to understand the self. And so it was inevitable that we were going to find them somewhere. And what happened in the 20th century, and particularly in the 1960s, was a kind of Eastern invasion, a sudden influx, influx of contemplative practices uh, from the East, like transcendental meditation, Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, Vipassana, um, Hare Krishna, uh, Tai Chi. Uh, and they've, in the last 50, 60 years, transformed our culture, these practices. So it's become very common now to have some form of contemplative uh, practice. Time magazine called it the mindful revolution. So something like 9% of Americans now have a meditation practice, 15% practice yoga. Uh, who here uh, does some kind of contemplative practice? Wow, yeah. Anyone here do kind of Christian contemplation? There we go, yeah. So, I mean, I went to a conference on contemplative studies. Thousands of people, hundreds of presentations, and they were all about kind of secular Buddhists. There was no real interest or awareness in indigenous contemplative practices. But that's because they kind of need you to believe Jesus was God. So it's quite difficult to get into them if you don't believe that. I tried. Um, so these practices, um, we have... Uh, we get these mystical experiences. They just arise, and they can be a bit scary if you're not expecting them. But if you have some kind of contemplative practice, some of these kind of experiences just come along as you, as you expand beyond your ordinary uh, ego. So Jack Cornfield did a study in 1979 which found 40% of practitioners on a two-week retreat report unusual experiences like rapture, visions, autonomic irregularity, and, and not always pleasant. Uh, anyone here been on a Vipassana retreat? Yep. <laughs> or anyone here been on, on retreats at all, or different kinds of retreats? Um, and so who's had things like, you know, fun types of uh, unusual experiences, like sudden feelings of deep joy or, or rapture or visions? Yeah. And has anyone had more difficult kinds of experiences, like uh, insomnia, or, you know, you can get sudden traumatic memories come back, you can get physical you know, irregularities? Yeah. Like shaking. I think Jack Cornfield had one where he couldn't stop flapping for several days. 
and he went and he said, you know, is this normal, teacher? And, 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 and the teacher said, just observe it and stuff. You know, don't, don't, don't try to push it away because that'll keep it there. So just observe it. But it can be scary, you know, or it can be amazing as well. Uh, and, they, and, and they teach you don't get attached to it and don't get averse to it. Um, so I went on a Vipassana retreat, and it's a really good lesson for this whole realm of ecstatic experience, which is these things happen. Don't get hung up on it and don't push it away. Um, so the, the lady next to me uh, on Vipassana, she, this was her second retreat. On her first one, she felt she was like on MDMA the whole 10 days. She was so high. She felt so great. She found it so easy. And then the second one, she went there expecting it, wanting it, and instead it was just kind of painful and boring. So that was, it was a kind of lesson. You never quite know. You can't get attached to any particular thing that arises. These things just arise. So what's going on though? Why do these things arise on meditation? It's a similar kind of model to what happens on psychedelics. We normally have a rather distracted kind of ego mind that we're stuck in. And when you sit in one place uh, and just focus your attention, you can shift and you can lower the threshold of consciousness, expand it. And things that are normally automatic and unconscious can arise, can come online. Emotions, uh, also visions, sudden influxes of energy, things that are usually under the bonnet can, can come there. And that can enable you to choose differently. You see some deep pattern arising and you can just observe it and say, OK, there you are. And I'm not going to hold on to you um, or push you away. Just um, see what happens. So there are similarities. And also, if you look at the neurobiology of, of uh, contemplation, you can put meditating monks into different types of brain scans. And there are some kind of parallels between psychedelics and meditation. They both lead to, lead to, um, seem to lead to greater brain connectivity, higher connectivity between different areas of the brain. And um, they can also lead to these scary experiences. What, you know, what in, the next talk is about Jung, uh, what Jung called the shadow which is these rather kind of darker bits which are beyond our ordinary conscious self. Um, and so some people, I mean, there are similar kinds of lessons one can learn from psychedelics and meditation, which is the importance of concentration and focus and equanimity, not hanging on to experiences, not pushing them away, and compassion, being kind to yourself in these unusual or altered states, maintaining a kind of clear focus and having courage as well because scary things can arise from your subconscious. So the, the, you know, your, level, your capacity to focus and capacity to be kind to yourself is very important. And some people combine psychedelics and meditation. So I went on an ayahuasca retreat in October, and we were encouraged to develop our meditation practice beforehand. And I found the stuff that I learned on meditation was really useful to me on ayahuasca, like being able to kind of sit up straight and focus uh, remember where I was, uh, remember to focus on my breath, remember to be kind to myself uh, when scary things happened. So those kinds of meditative tools were really useful uh, on psychedelics and in terms of integrating the kind of insights you get. So some people, uh, you know, use them together. Okay, the last area I want to look at is uh, surrender to a higher power. So... William James, in this, in this wonderful book, um, The Varieties of Religious Experience, one of the things he was very interested in was how people can find radical healing in their lives by surrendering to a higher power, the complete opposite of self-help, the complete opposite of the Greek philosophy model, which is use your reason, 
to pull yourself up and heal yourself, and you can do it, you can improve yourself. But that doesn't always work. And instead, sometimes some people find healing completely the opposite way, by saying, I can't do it anymore. If there's something up there, I need your help now, because I can't do it. So the surrender of the self, surrender of power and autonomy and control. And James saw that often that seemed to work. People did find healing and power uh, and, and, and kind of the, the ability to change when they surrendered control, paradoxically. One example, famous example, is uh, Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. He tried many different techniques to overcome his chronic alcoholism. It didn't work. And finally, uh, he fell to his knees in, in a hotel room and said, okay, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I'm finished. If there's something up there, um, help me. Otherwise, that's it. Uh, I give up. And he had a full-on ecstatic experience. He saw a kind of white light. He felt the kind of the room fill with a kind of noise and, and, and wind. It was like something from the Old Testament. And he felt uh, reborn. He felt like able to step out from his habitual narrative. I'm Bill, I'm an alcoholic. And, 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 and not be that and be something else. He, you know, open to the possibility of a different kind of story. So um, it's interesting, like, and, and uh, you know, if you look at cultures around the world, there are places of surrender, places they go to to surrender to God in some form or other. And in most, in, 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 in many countries, that's what mental health care is. Uh, there is no psychiatrist around, there are no therapists around. If you have an emotional problem, you go for faith healing in some form or other. Uh, and it often seems to work. So I was interested in this. Um, I, the reason I'm interested in this whole area, one of them is um, having had social anxiety and post-traumatic stress when I was a teenager, I, was, um, I found a lot of healing through a near-death experience, which happened to me when I was 24, where having tried everything to get better through university and so on, I then, I was, I was on a skiing holiday in Norway with my family, and I went through a fence on the first day on the side of a mountain and fell off this kind of cliff uh, and fell 30 feet or so uh, and broke my leg and banged my head and was transported somewhere else, I mean, uh, into a kind of white light and uh, felt totally like healed uh, and loved and okay. And this lasts about two minutes, I think because then my uncle skied up and said, oh my God, you know, you're covered in blood. Um, and, it, and it kind of lasted uh, for a while. It helped me on this path to healing. And I didn't know what the hell that was. Or how could I get it again? Because I felt so great. And over the years, some, you know, the old patterns of anxiety and depression would come back. So I was like, that felt like I connected to some kind of loving God thing. And I wondered if I could connect to that again. And it was something deeper than rational Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy massively helped me too. But I, you know, what was that experience? So um, while I was researching this book, uh, I thought, well, it sounds a bit like kind of the Holy Spirit. So maybe I could find that in, in, in Christianity. Uh, I rejected Christianity when I was about 12. Thought it was you know, really silly. <laughs> and, um, but I wanted to find out. I met some people who ran um, the Alpha course. Is it on here? Being on that? Hands up if you've been on that. No shame here. No judgment. Okay, two people there. So the Alpha course is a, um, it's a kind of course that um, millions of people have taken 
Uh, and it's like a course in ecstatic Christianity. You meet up with people, group of about 15 or so, every Thursday evening, uh, and you talk a little bit about your stories. You open up to each other. It's a very nice kind of group therapy type thing. And they also tell, you know, they get you to pray for each other. And then they try to kind of um, help you towards an ecstatic encounter with Jesus. So you go on an Alpha weekend and they say, we're going to teach you this prayer, come Holy Spirit. Well, that's all you have to do. Invite the Holy Spirit in. So it's this model of the self as porous. We can invite the Holy Spirit in and then we'll be healed and supported and carried. So I went, yeah, I loved the group kind of uh, aspect, really liked the people on the group. How nice to kind of meet up regularly with a group of people and just check in with each other. How nice to pray for each other as well, just wish well to each other. So I went on the, um, the weekend uh, and um, I said, uh, you know, the prayer, come Holy Spirit. Uh, and then I opened my eyes and the vicar was standing next to me with a grin. And he said, did anything happen? Did you feel anything? And I was like, mm, not really. I felt a bit wobbly, but, you know, nothing much, nothing very major. Other people around me were definitely having kind of powerful experiences. People were in tears. People were kind of, you know, so, but not, I didn't really get anything. So I, I, you know, I was a bit disappointed. I was like, what is God not into me? Uh, what, what, what's going on? So I carried on researching, and I researched about different kind of ecstatic Christian movements, uh, like the Welsh revival of 1904, where 10% of the population of Wales converted to Christianity, and alcoholism levels plummeted. Uh, and I went to Wales, uh, and I went to this... Um, this kind of retreat called Falderbrennan in Pembrokeshire, which is known as being a very ecstatic place where miracles were constantly happening. And I went on their summer retreat. And we were in a church in the countryside in Pembrokeshire. Uh, and I was surrounded by um, ecstatic pensioners. <laughs> and it was full on. Uh, and people were fainting, screaming, um, you know, uh, exorcisms, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. It was the worst holiday ever. Um, and then I retreat to my hotel room and read all these books about the kind of, you know, the history of these kinds of movements, the Quakers, Pentecostalists and so on. Um, and yet, you know, like over the days, it kind of, yeah, I mean, they were pretty nice people. There. They were so friendly. And I did really want to connect to whatever it was that I'd had that experience of, like to connect to that God of love. And at some point, I think on the last day, I was right at the back of the church and I said something to myself like, okay, you know, I'm, if there's something there, I surrender to you. And I, I choose to kind of, I said, I, I dedicate my, myself to you. And then something happened. So I felt this kind of force hit me and like, you know, it almost like knocked me back like that. If you, do you remember the vase I showed of the, the Greek follower of Dionysus with their head back like that? It was a bit like that. And I felt something like take my breath away, like it took my breath away. And I felt this, you know, this kind of sense of joy and, and, and also just surprise. Because like, a bit of my rational mind was watching going, what the fuck is this? <laughs> um, and it lasted for about an hour, just like this. You know, like a, you can imagine I was zapped by a UFO or something. I went to get some water and I saw my pupils were dilated, like when I was raving. I was like, that's interesting. So it was like this kind of autonomic reaction. And I was like, wow, God, hey, that, is that, what does that prove? You know, and um, the vicar said uh, at the front, does anyone here want to dedicate their life to Jesus today? 
which is a very strange thing to ask, because they were all totally committed uh, Christian pensioners. But at the back, I, I raised my hand. I don't think you know, he even saw, but the, the old people around me did. So I was suddenly hugged by loads of these ecstatic pensioners. <laughs> this, this guy, this sweet old man said to me, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, it doesn't matter. You're going to heaven now. So I was like, um, I've still got in my wallet a card from one of the sweet old ladies that she gave to me, just saying, good luck on your journey. Um, and uh, so I drove back to, uh, to London and my heart was on fire. Uh, and I felt, it's, it's, it's true, uh, there is a God of love and he loves me. Uh, and I announced on my blog the next week, my blog which is mainly kind of sceptics, stoics, rationalists, <laughs> I said, I found Jesus! <laughs> and like 50% un unsubscribed immediately. <laughs> I met the publishers of my first book and they said, uh, you know, have you thought about your second book? What would you like to write about? I said, Jesus! <laughs> Uh, and I didn't do a deal with them. <laughs> and, um, you know, but then over the weeks, the high kind of died down. That's, that's what happens. That For about four weeks, I was incredibly happy. I was in full of love. I went to the dentist to have some wisdom teeth removed. And the dentist said, you know, you seem so happy. You know, what's going on? <laughs> but um, it died down. And some of the cultural issues I had with Christianity kind of came back about, you know, sexual ethics and, and, um, and the rationality kicked in. And I, and I started to read the Bible. I really didn't like the Bible. Uh, and I had all these, you know, these, these skeptical doubts and, and it just kind of died down. It was like a marriage in Vegas. And I was like, what have I done? Oh, this doesn't make sense to me. But I've kind of declared that I am a Christian now. Oh, what's this book going to be about? Um, and I wondered what, that, what had happened to me then in that experience. And, um, and I, I went to interview... Um, oh, sorry, that's me in the church. I had this kind of uh, <laughs> Blues Brothers type experience at the back of the church. So I went to, and one of the people I interviewed when I was thinking about this was Darren Brown, who'd grown up a uh, Pentecostalist. Uh, very into it when he was a teenager, very into the kind of ecstatic Christianity but then had lost his faith at, at university. And I said to him, what do you think that was? Was that just kind of hypnosis? Something about the crowd uh, and primed by the vicar, that it was some kind of hypnotic induction which led to this powerful thing? And he said, well, we don't really know exactly what hypnosis is, for one thing. We don't know if people are just going along with a kind of group dynamic or people are really going into some altered state of consciousness, some difficult neurological state. But um, he says, we do know that it often kind of works for people. It often leads to um, healing. And he found this in that show. Did anyone see the show Miracle? <coughs> so the second half of the show, he pretends to be a Pentecostal preacher. And he invites people up on stage. And it's all kind of, he goes, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to cast out the demons. The Lord is going to come upon you. You can imagine the audience, Darren Brown people, like cynical, like Londoners, uh, and they would kind of queue up on stage, come on stage. And the weird thing was, like, they would pass out. They would uh, start shaking. So if you looked at Twitter, you know, after one of his shows, it was full of accounts of people who said they'd actually found healing. Um, so this guy says, didn't get to ask my question, Darren Brown, but 10 months after being on stage at Miracle, my dad doesn't feel the chronic pain in his leg. Faye Johnson says, just watching Darren Brown and reliving when I saw it live. You healed the pain in my right foot and my dad's too. Thank you. 
And this guy says, my legs started to buckle with the mass healing and a weird sensation spread. I wet myself. <laughs> so that's interesting, isn't it? Like, you know, the actual kind of healing can happen. So what's going on there? And I went to Nicky Gumbel, who's the vicar who runs the Alpha Course. And I said to him, don't you think this is just hypnosis? When you say on the Alpha Course, you may feel a kind of tingling or a warmth you may feel like something carrying, you may feel a kind of breeze. Aren't you, isn't this just a form of hypnotic induction? And he says he's asked himself uh, the same question. And when he was a skeptic, he thought maybe this is just hypnosis. And he said, we don't entirely know with ecstatic experiences in Christianity. Like he said, there are three things that could be any ecstatic experience in Christianity. It could be psychology, just kind of group dynamics or expectation. It could be the devil or it could be God. And we don't quite know, and it's mysterious. And even in the church, people get freaked out when mass ecstatic moments happen. So HGB, where he works, was very ecstatic in the 80s. You know, the people would, filled with like what they called holy laughter, the whole congregation would be like cracking up. Nicky Gumbel is rather, you know, stiff public school barrister. He had to be carried out of the church catatonic because he'd passed out back in the 80s. So he says, you know, so a lot of people thought this isn't right, this is freaky, this is demonic in the church. And he said, we don't entirely know, but what's what matters is the fruit. We don't know the roots, we don't know what, where these things come from, for sure. We don't definitely know. But we can see, does it transform their lives for the better? Does it lead to people being freed from alcoholism, to marriages being saved? Does it lead to them becoming a better person in their society? That's a fascinating answer, really, from him, because it's exactly the answer that William James gave. Uh, he said as well, like, when you look at ecstatic experiences, we can't know the roots, we can just know the fruits. Does it make people feel better? Not just feel better, does it make them better people? Um, and often it does. So, um, it seems to be this kind of model again, similar kind of model for these ecstatic experiences in faith healing which is that people seem to go into some kind of, they lower the threshold of consciousness, go into some kind of subconscious state. And William James said, we don't know if it's just the subconscious and some kind of auto-suggestion that's leading to healing, or if it's the subconscious and God. He said, if there is a mechanism through which God operates on humans, it's probably through the trapdoor of the subconscious. So it may be just the subconscious or maybe subconscious and God or spirit in some form. So, a new scientific consensus is emerging, which is that um, ecstatic experiences are not always pathological, that they're often good for us. Uh, they're quite common, happen to lots of people, not weird, and they often lead to uh, good outcomes, to people feeling healthier, more connected, more sense of meaning in their life. But there's a question, you know, that's the very pragmatic analysis of XT. There's still the question, what does it tell us about reality? Is this all just auto-suggestion? Is this all just hypnosis? Is this all just cultural projection, smoke and mirrors? Or are we really connecting to some kind of spiritual reality that's transpersonal, that's beyond the human? And if so, what is the nature of that reality? And that is uh, still an open question. But we should also talk about um, the dark side of ecstasy. I'm very happy with that animated slide. Because <laughs> um, there is a real dark side as well when we go beyond our kind of ordinary conscious ego. 
Not everything down there in the subconscious is, uh, is treasure. There are kind of monsters and dragons down there as well. So um, in ecstatic states, people can be hyper-suggestible, which is why you have to be very careful about the context in which you unself and find ecstasy. If you're going to do psychedelic therapy, for example, don't do what many tourists do, which is just go to Iquitos in Peru and, and go off with the first person who says he's a shaman uh, on, on, on a street corner because he might not know what he's doing or he might be a, a rapist. Um, so, I mean, like you look at uh, in the 60s, some of the, the crazy cults that were using psychedelics, like the Manson family and all his followers, because they, they were taking so much LSD, they were very hyper-suggestible. So they really thought this failed musician was uh, God. Um, so that's one of the risks. We lose our kind of critical firewall. Uh, we, there's a loss of the ability to kind of check what you're thinking. So in the days after I did ayahuasca, uh, I was on a nine-day retreat, so I was doing loads of the drugs. Then I went off traveling on my own. And for about three days, I thought I was in a dream. I thought, this isn't, I'm not in reality. I'm either in a dream or I'm dead. Uh, and I'm in some kind of weird afterlife. And what amazes me now is that I lost the ability to go, no, mate, you've just been doing drugs for nine days. <laughs> I, I lost that critical ability. So that's dangerous. Uh, and you can believe any kind of stuff in these ecstatic states. You look at, look at you know, the, the, uh, Christianity or the New Age. It's some, you know, people believe all kinds of things. So this is um, a guy who went to Am the Amazon to do ayahuasca, a, a IT engineer, who got a vision that uh, he had to construct a pyramid to enable better communication with aliens. Uh, and you know, he built this pyramid. It's like a kind of uh, Werner Herzog movie. Uh, and he constructed this pyramid, and then a year later it had fallen apart and, you know, turned out not to be very uh, reliable vision. So how reliable are, are the insights that come to us on mysticism? For example, Simon Amstel says he was healed from his depression because he had a vision of his father beating up his mother when he was four. But there's a footnote in his book which says, this may not actually have happened. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, that matters, doesn't it? So the insights we come to, might, you know, how reliable are they? In, in the Christian Middle Ages, they talked about the discernment of the spirits, which is that the idea that not everything that comes to you in ecstasy is reliable or true or helpful. So that's another key question. Can we balance our Socratic rationality with our Dionysiac ecstasy? And then there's this idea of the shadow as well. When you're going beyond your ordinary ego, you can face like buried trauma, things about you that you really don't like or are really afraid of, and that can be very scary. And You can be flooded with these shadow elements. Uh, and if you don't have the kind of tools to deal with that, you can feel like you're going crazy. And you might be sectioned, even. Um, so you have to be aware of that. that there, there, there are these, uh, well, I guess Kevin's going to talk about that more in the next talk. So these scarier, darker aspects of the subconscious can arise and test your ability to stay there, stay present, and observe it uh, without attachment, without aversion, and just observe it. So we really need spiritual tools uh, in general in life, but particularly when we're dealing with these kinds of altered states. Focus, concentration, the ability to stay present and focused, even in highly altered states. Um, I interviewed, if you go onto my blog, Philosophy for Life, I just did an interview with a guy who has had psychotic episodes for the last 10 years but he's been able to kind of navigate through that just through his meditation practice. 
So when he's having crazy visions and, and really intrusive thoughts and powerful emotions, he can stay present and like just say, oh, hello, welcome, but I'm not going to act on you. Um, and stay kind of kind to himself and so on. That's amazing. So he's really got that focus uh, and compassion, the ability to be friendly to ourselves. Because on, you know, people think, I, I just want ecstasy, I want flow, because then I'm going to be uh, more successful, uh, more productive, more creative. But it can be really disorientating when you have these kind of experiences, because they, you know, they overturn the apple cart of your habitual beliefs. And it can lead to this, like, bewilderment. So you've got to be friendly to yourself and patient with yourself. Uh, on the journey. Uh, you need humor as well, not to take yourself too seriously. Sometimes have one of these ecstatic experiences, decide you're Jesus, decide you're on a kind of a mission. You're uniquely, uh, you know, blessed with insight. So you definitely need humor and humility to keep grounded in that. And courage as well. And above all, equanimity. You know, this idea of not being overly attached if these experiences happen or overly afraid of them. If you look earlier in European culture, we were very afraid of, these, of ecstasy. We pathologized it. There's a risk now we become over-attached to it. We become hungry for ecstasy. We seek a spiritual life only made up of peak experiences, thrills and spills. So ecstasy or altered states naturally arise on the spiritual path, but they're not the goal, uh, I would suggest. They're just experiences that happen. Um, they're not kind of worthwhile or valuable in themselves, only if they lead to altered traits. So there's a theologian called Houston Smith said, the goal is not altered states, but altered traits. Do they change you? Do you, they make you a better person? If not, it's just a rush. No big deal. The goal is to go beyond the ego, to transform in order to become a kinder person, uh, you know, uh, less egotistical. And the problem is that the ego loves to come along on the journey. So uh, you have some kind of spiritual experience said, oh, that, that, you know, the ego wants to cash it in. Um, so that's the kind of challenge. Whenever you have one of these experiences, the ego just loves to jump on board and, and come on board. So I want to end with this quote um, by Yuval Noah Harari, who, who's you know, a very serious Vipassana practitioner. And he says, people come on retreats and want to experience bliss and see stars and whatever. And then they come on retreat and are told to observe their breath or to observe boredom. And people say, I don't want to observe boredom or pain. I want these special, exciting experiences. The danger is people just want the next special experience. And the real key is to understand the normal everyday experiences and not the unique once in a lifetime experience. So coming back to the idea of should we seek ecstasy? I mean, I, I don't know. I think these things happen along the way. Um, Oops. And, um, and sometimes you can go for practices, you know, for ecstatic healing if you feel like, you know, you want transformation, you've tried other practices and it hasn't worked. But there is a danger of getting hung up and constantly looking for the next big breakthrough, the next epiphany, the next thrill. And then you have some thrilling, exciting moment. And then over the weeks and months ahead, the air slowly goes out of your balloon and you feel bored and depressed again. So you go, okay, what am I going to do next? What am I going to like a campo frog retreat? or ecstatic dancing, a gong bath, what's going to be next, you know? And actually, what, what are you avoiding? You're avoiding the loneliness and the boredom and the depression, and actually maybe the, the deeper work is to kind of sit with that as well. Um, so thank you for that. Um, that's my website, philosophyforlife.org. Those are my two books. I've got some of them to sell here as well. Um, thank you.